listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War. The Philippines, the USA, war, colonialism, and the martial arts. Part 4. For those of you who think that I've finally descended truly into senility, who think I've gone off the rails and gotten bogged down in the Spanish-American War, on my way to telling the story of the Philippine-American War, please be patient, if you can. This is all, in my opinion, important background information, and what's more important, a hell of a great story made up of a series of much smaller great stories. Anyway, back to the story. Last time, I told you about the Battle of Las Guasimas, in which the Rough Riders stumbled into an enemy ambush, took lots of casualties, and then were saved by African-American buffalo soldiers of the 10th Cavalry. What's interesting is the wildly different accounts of casualties from this battle, depending on what source you consult. Wikipedia states that 27 Americans died and 52 were wounded, while 7 Spaniards were killed with 14 being wounded. Sounds like a minor battle. These are the statistics that were released by the Army, and they were repeated by Theodore Roosevelt in his book, The Rough Riders. He also claimed that only one of those killed was an African-American soldier, and that only eight of his Rough Riders had died. But lots of other eyewitness sources, including reporters, soldiers, and doctors, dispute these numbers. Richard Harding Davis was one of the reporters who accompanied the Rough Riders. His press dispatches to the newspapers at home adhered strictly to Teddy Roosevelt's wishes regarding the way the war and most especially Mr. Roosevelt's role in that war, was portrayed. But later, he wrote a book entitled Notes of a War Correspondent, in which he told quite a different story. Quote, Every third Rough Rider was killed or wounded at Las Guasimas. Unquote. Now that would mean at least 150 casualties right there. Another interesting comment comes from another reporter who was there. Herschel V. Cashin, who said, quote, If it had not been for the Negro cavalry, the Rough Riders would have been exterminated. Unquote. Assistant Surgeon Bob Church, whose own heroics in the battle could make up an entire podcast, worked in the field hospital after the battle and reported seeing at least 200 seriously wounded Americans in that facility. Now, why would anyone lie about the casualties of this battle? Well, taking heavy losses in their first encounter with the enemy in this foreign adventure might not sit so well with the American public. More specifically, in the case of Mr. Roosevelt, it's important to keep in mind what happens in the next few years. Based on what Americans read in the newspapers of his exploits in Cuba, he returned home a widely acclaimed and wildly popular war hero. 
Within months, he was elected governor of New York. A little over a year after that, he was asked by William McKinley to be his running mate in the 1900 presidential race, which McKinley won. Less than a year later, McKinley was dead from an assassin's bullet. And our friend Theodore Roosevelt had, in the course of two years and a few months, gone from resigning his post as Assistant Secretary of the Navy to the Presidency of the United States. Now, Mr. Roosevelt would write his own book, The Rough Riders, and time its release for when he was running for re-election in 1904. It would not have been in his best political interest to accurately depict what happened at Las Guasimas, if for no other reason than that depicting African-American soldiers in a positive light would probably cost him the votes of every southern state. There were also some interesting accounts of the battle provided by surviving Spaniards. Of course, the Spanish government had motivations similar to those of the U.S. government, and accounts of the battle from the Spanish government were just as distorted. They asserted that 10,000 Americans had attacked 4,000 Spaniards and had suffered horrible losses. The truth was that the Spaniards had about 1,500 men, and the Americans about 1,000. Another assertion by the Spanish government was that the Spaniards won the battle, but that the Americans quote, persisted in continuing to fight, unquote, and as a result, the Spanish army felt it necessary to leave the battlefield. A perhaps more accurate description comes from a Spanish soldier who was there. The valiant charge up the hill by the dismounted American regular cavalrymen, especially by the Buffalo soldiers, whom the Spanish referred to as smoked Yankees, was described in the following terms, quote, when we fired a volley, instead of falling back, they came forward. This is not the way to fight, to come closer at every volley. They tried to catch us with their hands. Unquote. It must have been frightening indeed watching the Buffalo soldiers tear uphill right at them, despite their best efforts. So why did the Spanish reinforce this seemingly insignificant little crossroads? The answer is to buy time for their comrades, who were hurriedly preparing more defensive positions on the outskirts of Santiago. While this battle at Las Guasimas was going on, the Americans back at the port in Daiquiri were still busy unloading supplies and troops from transport ships under the watchful eye of General Shafter, who was watching impatiently from an American warship in the bay. He was upset about the losses at Las Guasimas, but most of his attention was focused on planning and preparing his forces for a much larger and perhaps more decisive battle. Just a mile east of Santiago was a north-south axis of elevated ground, a ridge, if you will, with two peaks. The Spanish called this ridge line the San Juan Heights. After the upcoming battle, the two peaks would come to be known as San Juan Hill and Kettle Hill. In order to get to Santiago, his troops would need to get past the fortified San Juan Heights on its outskirts, which loomed across their path like a fortified roadblock. General Wheeler, violating direct orders from General Shafter, sent scouts ahead to observe the area. What they saw was disconcerting, to say the least. The Spaniards had already constructed more than two miles of trenches, protected by barbed wire. Even more alarming, they were building a vastly larger set of entrenchments stretching all the way to the coast, eight miles away. 
It would later be revealed that part of the Spanish general's thinking was that it was only a matter of time before tropical diseases, especially yellow fever, would begin to take a heavy toll on the Americans. It didn't take a profit to predict this. The Spaniards themselves had suffered more losses by far from yellow fever than from combat with the Cuban rebels in the years leading up to this war. The Americans had only been here a few days. The Spanish commander knew that if he could simply bide his time behind his fortifications, the contagion of yellow fever would ramp up in the ranks of the Americans and go a long way towards defeating them. General Shafter, on the other hand, felt burned by the high number of casualties suffered days before at Las Guasimas, and was determined to have more control over future operations. This determination forced him to make his tortured, painful way off of a ship and be helped onto an unfortunate horse, whose unenviable job was to bear his massive bulk inland toward his troops. This, of course, took time. But even with that, once he arrived and conferred with his field commanders, he dithered for several more days, unable to decide on the best battle plan. He eventually decided that a frontal assault, there's a surprise, against the fortified peaks of San Juan Hill and Kettle Hill was the way to go. This would be preceded by an attack on a village to the north called El Cane. This village had been fortified and was strongly manned by over 500 Spaniards. This put a powerful enemy strong point directly on the proposed right flank of the American attack formation. That would never do. One of the three American divisions, the second, under General Lawton, was detailed to reduce the village of El Cane. General Lawton gave General Shafter an estimate of two hours to accomplish this. After he did so, his next job would be to drive south and assist in the attack on San Juan Heights, coming in on the left flank of the Spanish. It's always wise, however, to remember the prophetic words of the Prussian military philosopher Helmut von Moltke when he said, No plan of battle survives contact with the enemy. The day of battle finally did come. One decision that General Shafter made on that day was to prove a bad one, a very bad one. He ordered that a manned observation balloon accompany the American troops as they approached San Juan Heights. Now think about what this looked like to the Spanish as they waited in their fortified positions for the American approach. Keep in mind that the Americans were tracking through jungle on the way to the battlefield. There were only so many navigable trails between where they were and where they wanted to go. The Spanish knew about all the trails, but couldn't have been sure which the Americans might take. Well, nothing screams, Here I am, like a gigantic hot air balloon floating above the jungle canopy. As it turned out, the men in the balloon were never able to gather any information that was helpful for the battle. In addition, the balloon made a dandy target for the itchy trigger fingers of the awaiting Spaniards. Any rifle fire that missed the balloon plunged down into the jungle, frequently inflicting casualties on the American troops marching there. 14,000 American troops were rapidly accumulating in the stretch of jungle just to the east of the San Juan Heights, taking casualties from artillery and small arms fire and impatiently awaiting orders to move out into the open to attack the Spanish. What were the generals waiting for? 
They were waiting for General Lawton to send word that he had taken the fortified village of El Canay. The brigade commanders had been given instructions by General Shafter, who was laid up in agony from a severe attack of gout in his tent, to begin the assault only after General Lawton had taken the village of El Canay. After several hours of this intolerable waiting, the brigade commanders decided to go ahead and begin the assault anyway. As the Americans moved out of the jungle into more open terrain, the Spanish increased their rate of fire. Things got especially hot as it became necessary to cross a small river on the way to the enemy's fortifications. To make things worse, our friend the observation balloon made a perfect indicator of just where the Americans were crossing. That is, until it was finally punctured by rifle fire and its wreckage fell onto the trees and men below. Now this was a huge balloon, and the cloth cover covered a lot of men for a good little while. Between the wreckage of the balloon and the intense Spanish gunfire, a great many of the Americans were unable to find sufficient cover. More than 80 of them were killed in just this small part of the battle. Meanwhile, our friend, Fightin' Joe Wheeler, had come down with a case of some sort of tropical fever and was confined to a cot. One of his subordinates, General Sumner, would command his dismounted cavalry units. But the sound of gunfire roused him from his sick bed like a fire alarm to an old retired fire horse. Somehow, he snuck past all the medical personnel and managed to climb onto a horse and move towards the sound of gunfire. He appeared, probably looking like some sort of horse-riding plague zombie, right about the time of the balloon debacle, but proved too weak to serve any more use than as a liaison between commanders. It's at this point in the story that a new significant figure appears, a 38-year-old captain named John J. Pershing, known as Black Jack to his contemporaries. Now those of you with knowledge of military history will immediately recognize this name. But for those of you who don't, I'll tell you about him next time. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com. <laughs>